Chapter 17 The Fish Hit the Fan As the daily deliveries of Sinopian fish slowed, things began to change. When the Sinopians, the biggest buyers of fish reserve notes, reduced their purchases, supply of notes began to overwhelm demand. When there is more supply than there is demand, prices have to fall. As fish reserve notes steadily drifted downward in value, no one wanted to be the one left holding the bag. The Bongobians and the Dervishes then joined the Sinopians in limiting their purchases. With plenty of sellers and no buyers, fish reserve notes entered a death spiral. Stuck with stacks of rapidly depreciating notes that he couldn't sell, the Sinopian king realized that events had moved beyond his ability to control. Knowing that his island's fish reserve notes would soon be nearly worthless, he prepared his subjects to bite the bullet. At a mass rally, he assured them that the short-term pain would soon give way to long-term gain. As expected, the value of Sinopian savings of fish reserve notes turned out to be a mirage. The Sinopian economy was pushed into disarray, and some businesses closed. But, as the peasant had predicted, other businesses soon stepped in and used the spare capacity to make things the Sinopians actually needed. As they had before, the Sinopians still caught fish, made products, and generated savings. Since these were the essential ingredients that caused an economy to grow, there was no reason for Sinopia to fall into crisis. In fact, with more products available at home and more of their savings in their own banks, living standards started to improve. Savings that in the past were locked up in fish reserve notes were instead lent out to local factories to retool for domestic consumption. As more products were produced for local consumers, Sinopian stores suddenly found themselves stocked with goods. Increased inventories meant that prices could come down. As the peasant had predicted, despite the losses in their doomed stockpiles of fish reserve notes, Sinopia thrived. Back in Usonia, things were headed in the opposite direction. With only the meager domestic catch available, the bank's fish technicians had to work even harder and more creatively than ever before. Official fish began shrinking at an alarming rate, and fishflation flared anew. But unlike prior outbreaks, this new variety spiraled out of control. Soon official fish got so small that they had to be bundled in packages of 50, then 100. Islanders were eating 200 fish a day just to stay alive. Any savings in fish reserve notes became essentially worthless. The condition became known as hyperfishflation. With fewer products coming in from Sinopia, Usonian retailers were left with diminished inventories. The result of skimpier fish chasing fewer products was soaring prices. Through a rowdy public campaign, the senators attacked retailers for price gouging. They claimed that fishflation could be stopped if the greedy business people would agree to price controls on products and services. But as these measures focus only on the symptoms of fishflation rather than the cause, they only made matters worse. Limiting what could be charged for a product without doing anything to control the decreasing value of money simply meant that manufacturers and retailers couldn't make a profit. As a result, 
They stopped selling, and a black market of illegally high-priced merchandise arose. Sensing the trouble with fish reserve notes, some citizens tried to protect the value of their remaining savings by depositing fish in an offshore bank, where their savings would be protected from senatorial slicing and dicing. But when the senators noticed this trend, they made it illegal to move savings off the island. The fear of shrinking fish became so prevalent that no deposits were left in the bank for very long. Every fish that was caught was immediately sliced up and consumed. As had been the case before their economy grew, there was once again no savings, no credit, and no investment. Unable to come up with any ideas, the senators did what they always did. They discussed plans for the next stimulus. Clearly, the prior attempts to shock the economy back to life were simply too small. The next round would just have to be bigger. However, no one was quite sure what would be used as a stimulant. At this low moment, the mood was lifted by the sight of a Sinopian cargo canoe on the horizon. The senators were thrilled. They assured their fellow islanders that the Sinopians must have seen the error of their misguided abandonment of fish reserve notes. They would once again be making deposits at the fish reserve bank. But when the Sinopian canoe made port, something entirely different ensued. Sinopian agents fanned out across the island with wheelbarrows of real fish and cartloads of fish reserve notes, buying everything, even the stuff that was nailed down. Since no one on Usonia had any real fish anymore, the Sinopians could outbid everybody on everything. They bought the waterworks, dismantled it, and put it in a cargo canoe. They did the same with the lighthouses. They bought all the donkey carts, surfboards, hand nets, used bongos, and even the mega fish catchers. For good measure, they snapped up all the empty condos so that Sinopian workers could have their own vacation huts. When the shopping spree was done, the Sinopians left, bringing everything of value with them. They left behind their unspent fish reserve notes that had accumulated over the years. At least the Usonians would have plenty of kindling for their cooking fires. Finding something to eat was a different matter. The senators surveyed the devastation and wondered where it all had gone wrong. They had spent, so why hadn't the economy grown? Finally, it became clear. It was all much simpler than what they had thought. Addressing an anxious population still looking for answers, Senator Okuda uttered the most honest words any politician could muster. Does anybody here remember how to make a net? I think it's time we all went fishing. Takeaway. Throughout history, governments have gotten themselves into trouble by spending more than they have. When the gaps become too big, difficult choices arise. One option is for the government to increase revenue by raising taxes. This path is never popular with citizens and in a democracy is hard to push through. Even in authoritarian states, where there are no pesky elections, tax increases are problematic. Higher rates always discourage productivity and deflate economic vitality. There is a limit to how high taxes can go. Raise them enough and people stop working. Raise them higher and they may even start rioting. A far better option is to cut government spending. However, this is often more difficult than raising taxes. Those whose benefits are cut are particularly apt at expressing their hostility, 
both at the polls and on the streets. This is especially true when the recipients feel entitled to the benefits. Politicians make lots of promises to secure their elections, and voters rarely consider the ability of taxpayers to actually foot the bills. To avoid either of these politically unpopular options, some governments choose to default instead. To do this, a country simply tells its creditors that it can't pay the full amount of its debt obligations. If the debt is largely owed to foreigners, the decision is that much easier to make. Politically speaking, it's better off to stiff a foreigner than to raise taxes on or deny benefits to a country's own citizens. For political leaders, default can be rather embarrassing, as it amounts to an official acknowledgement of insolvency. To avoid this, many opt to simply print money to pay debts, effectively repudiating their obligations by inflating them away. Since inflation is usually the easiest choice to make, it is often the most likely. But while it may seem easy at first, it ultimately exacts the harshest toll. Inflation allows governments to avoid hard choices and dispose of their debts on the sly. By printing money, governments can nominally pay back all that they owe, but they do so by diluting their currency. Creditors get paid, but what they get isn't worth much, and if inflation turns into hyperinflation, it's worth nothing. Inflation is simply a means to transfer wealth from anyone who has savings in a particular currency to anyone who has debt in the same currency. With hyperinflation, the value of savings gets completely wiped out and the burden of debt is removed. Those who own hard assets do okay, because unlike savings in currency, assets will rise in nominal value when inflation flares up. It has happened many times before. France in the 1790s, the Confederate States of America in the 1860s, Germany in the 1920s, Hungary in the 1940s, Argentina and Brazil in the 1970s and 1980s, and Zimbabwe today. In all of these instances, the circumstances that led up to the hyperinflation and the economic devastation that followed were remarkably similar. The countries satisfied staggering debt by wiping out the value of their currencies. As a result, their own populations were thrown into abject poverty. The United States today would certainly be the largest and most advanced economy to ever experience hyperinflation. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Thus far, our ace in the hole has been the reserve status of the U.S. dollar. This means that the dollar will continue to be widely accepted no matter how bad the fundamentals get. But if we lose reserve status, our currency would be just as vulnerable as those that went down before. We must look at these possibilities and head them off now, before we no longer have the ability to decide for ourselves.